asked him where he came from, and he didn't tell me his name. But he said to me, You will become pregnant and have a son. Now then, drink no wine or other fermented drink, and do not eat anything unclean, because the boy will be a Nazarite of God from the womb until the day of his death. This is God's word. You may be seated. Thank you. Everybody have an outline? All right. And let's keep our Bibles open to uh, Judges chapter 13. And while you're doing that, uh, this morning we announced that uh, Sylvia Branch is, is really making good recovery and going through rehab very successfully right now. And in the course of that information, we announced that uh, uh, the sons had asked that their, the family was asking that there not be any visitors uh, while she make this, this, uh, this, uh, this, this process of rehabilitation for her hip. Um, Sylvia would like to have visitors after 5 p.m., which means that that's, that's be judicious. Uh, you know, part of the healing process is receiving encouragement and, and being loved upon, and uh, everybody would agree with that. Uh, the problem is, is just showing up during the time during the day when she's trying to rehab and she's tired and, and needing to get a rest. So what we'd like to do is, if you would like to go by and visit uh, Sylvia, uh, you might call Cynthia first. If not, you know, just make sure that it's after 5 o'clock and, and make sure that that's a good time to go by and see Sylvia. We want to see her uh, go through this rehab very successfully and make sure that there are no setbacks and uh, we want to continue praying for her. We also want to continue praying for uh, Gary Weaver, uh, whose wife Linda, as you know, passed away. The visitation was this afternoon from 2 to 5. Funeral is going to be here at MAC uh, at noon tomorrow with uh, Graveside uh, following that. Also want to continue remembering uh, Bill Welch and, and his son and three daughters and all of those grandkids. The passing of Dorothy this past week as well. Funeral for the visitation was, as you know, Friday night. And the funeral for Dorothy was yesterday morning at 10. But they, these families are going to continue to need our prayers and our encouragement and our notes. And uh, if you have an opportunity to, to take one of those pink cards out, you might write an encouragement card to Sylvia or to, uh, to Gary, we'll make sure that that gets to Gary, or to Bill, we'll make sure that those notes get to Bill as well. And that's, uh, let's continue that prayer right now before we jump into Samson. Father, we're, we are grateful not just for the opportunity for us to sing and to worship and to be reminded once again about the words of faith and the actions of faith in worship and praising You and adoring You, Father, and and, and opening our minds and heart to Your presence in such a way that as we come into Your presence, the very natural, most natural thing for us to do as human beings of faith and in faith is, is to lift up our voices and declare that You are the most beautiful thing we have ever seen. Our gaze, Father, is focused on Your beauty in our presence. Thank You, Thank You, Father, for centering us again in Your presence, especially as we get ready to go into this week. And Father, we, we lift up to You Gary and, and Bill who are grieving the loss of, of, of a wife. We, we ask You to bless them and to bless their children. Uh, we pray for Sylvia as she makes recovery from a, a hip surgery. And we pray that the process of rehabilitation and of healing be successful and that she be encouraged and that she know our love for her. Thank You, Father, for hearing our prayers. And as we study this text tonight, we're asking for eyes to see and ears 
to hear in such a way that not only is our imagination awakened to all things spiritual, but to see, Father, the way that You have always worked in history to, to bring human beings through faith into Your presence. Thank You, Father, for our time together tonight. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's a, um, over the last ten years, there's been a series of contemporary superhero movies that, uh, that really present uh, the bad guys as a, a sort of an, a hero anti-type. They're, they're super bad guys who at, at times, they, they demonstrate a very clear biblical view of sin, but their idea of the cure for sin is all wrong. These supervillains understand completely, clearly, they, they have no doubt about this, that human beings are flawed sinners, but their solution is almost always the same. You wipe out every human being without mercy and without lifting a finger to try to redeem a fallen human, uh, human being. Let, let me give you a couple of, of examples. The first one, uh, some years ago, in the original Matrix movie, the Agent Smith, who is um, uh, part of the computer programming, he calls humanity a virus. He says, and I quote, human beings are a disease, a cancer of this planet. You're a plague and we are the cure. In 2005, the very first of the, the I should say the very first of the latest version of the Batman movies, Batman Begins, there's a villain played by Liam Neeson whose name is Ra's al Ghul. He is the leader of the League of Shadows. And he tells Batman at some point uh, in the movie that Gotham's time has come. The, the big New York City of, of the, the Batman movies, of the Batman story. Gotham's time has come. Like Constantinople or Rome before it, the city has become a breeding ground of suffering and injustice. It is beyond saving and must be allowed to die. The League of Shadows has, has been a check, he says later in the movie, at the close of the movie, says the League of Shadows has been a check against human corruption for thousands of years. We sacked Rome, loaded trade ships with plague rats, burned London to the ground. Every time a civilization reaches the pinnacle of its decadence and evil, we return, that is the League of Shadows returns, to restore the balance. Well, as you know, Batman defeats the League of Shadows only for them to make a new movie. And this one, the latest version, The Dark Knight Rises, there is a bad guy by the name of Bane who tells Batman that he has come to carry on the League of Shadows mission in the wake of Ra's Ghoul's death. Batman prevents uh, the, the, you know, the attempt uh, by Ra's Ghoul and Batman be begins, but Bane has returned to finish the job by planting a nuclear device in Gotham City. Again, he is defeated. Now, in the book of Judges, we have a recurring theme. The theme is this. Israel swaps the God of heaven for the idols of the earth. That's what's happening over and over and over again in, in, uh, in the book of Judges. That Israel swaps the God of heaven for the idols of earth. And when they do this, this brings incredible levels of evil into the land of God's people. This ideology creates uh, corruption, it creates all kinds of issues, creates problems, it creates dysfunctionality among the people, but more than anything else, it creates a problem between God and His people. But very much unlike the supervillain who sees the only solution as eradication of the human race, God the Father, in a love so profoundly deep and so profoundly patient, 
that the only way that we can describe it is to say that it's an infinite love, this God chooses not eradication, but redemption. If Judges teaches us anything about God, and it teaches us a lot, but if it teaches us anything about God, it is this, that God has human redemption at heart. It's not just judgment. It's not just punishment. It's not just the consequences of sin that have to be played out in the lives of human beings. But God, in doing all of this, in working history, the way that He does it with His might and His strength and His wisdom, it is about redeeming human beings. It's about reconciling them with God. We see this truth again and the, and the work that God has to do as we come to this final uh, cycle that we have seen recurring throughout Judges. In Judges 13, verse 1, again, the Israelites do evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, this is going to be the last time, even though the book is going to continue and Samson is going to be the last of the major judges, what we see throughout the rest of the book is a different way of describing the cycle that has been described about seven, it's been said about seven different times throughout the book. What we read in Judges 17 and Judges 21 are these words now. In those day, days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Now what you have in these last two statements with all of those that have occurred before is that you have things being done in God's eyes and you have things being done in human eyes or according to human eyes. And the point the writer seems to be making is that whether they, it was seen through God's eyes or whether what they were doing was seen right in their own eyes, what everybody thought they were doing, they thought that, you know, nobody said that they were doing evil and chose to do that. What they thought they were doing was right. In their eyes, what they were doing was completely acceptable. Yet over and over again, it's unacceptable in God's eyes, which tells us really two truths about sin. Truth number one is this. Sin is a violation of God's will. Now we throw the word sin out a lot. It's ultimately, though, even though we use it in a lot of different ways, it's ultimately not a violation of our own conscience. It's not a violation of our personal standards. It's not even a violation of community standards. The idea of sin as a violation of God's will, this runs counter to most of the thinking of people in our culture, and really for, that part, uh, for the most part, people in our world. In our world and in our culture, and you know, we'll talk about our culture because that's, it's the one we live in, morality is something that you make up, make up as you go. Uh, morality is, is something that an individual decides. The individual decides what is right or wrong. Ironically, in our culture, morality is something that the majority decides as well. And not only are we to be accepting of other people's morality, in our culture we have to be affirming of it as well. But does this not run counter to common sense? Does it not violate common sense? Take for, uh, you, there's lots of examples. You could take, uh, you could take Stalin and, and the gulags. You, you could take um, uh, lots of things that have happened in, in uh, more recent pieces of, of world history. But, but think about, for instance, Nazi Germany of the 1930s and the 1940s. How could, in the culture that we live in, in the way that morality is, is determined and affirmed, how can the Nazis be condemned for the Holocaust when what they thought they were doing was a favor for the world, exterminating the Jews, and they thought that they were writing 
past injustices. Quite frankly, it doesn't take a lot of reflection on human history and some of the specifics like Nazi Germany in the 30s and the 40s to see that our own eyes are not sufficient. Sin is a violation of the will of God for us. And then number two, sin deceives the human heart. The text doesn't really tell us the motivations for the cycles of idolatry leading to a miserable life, but the fact that the cycles were repeated over and over and over and over tells us that there is a major deception at hand on the part of the idols. You know, as we've seen before, idols are not always these overtly rival gods like the, the Baals and the Asherah. Sometimes, and in the most cases uh, in our own culture, idols are sometimes good things that have been turned into the most important thing. Money is good, but when it becomes the most important thing, it becomes the ultimate good, then it gets us into trouble. Uh, jobs, relationships, our own bodies, power, all of these things can be good things. They can be, in fact, fantastic things. But when they are turned into the ultimate good, when they are turned into the most prominent, most important things in our lives, that's when they begin to do their damage. These things are not bad things in our eyes until we put them in the place that is reserved exclusively for God. Then it becomes destructive, and then it takes over. I read this story about a, a woman who was renting a house, and she named the house the Critter Cafe. And uh, the, the woman, uh, this Mrs. Bishop, well-intentioned rescuer of stray cats, dogs, and lost ducks. Then someone dropped off a cage of pet, uh, of pet rats. And soon the neighbors are complaining of a stench in the house and could see rats running all over the place, running outdoors. When finally the officials in this township came into the house, they found that the rats had totally overrun the house. They initially removed 1,500 rats, knowing or estimating that there were at least 1,000 more that remained in the property. The property owner says that the rats have become feral. They will bite, they carry ticks, they carry fleas, and are susceptible to rabies and disease. So it's become this very dangerous thing. The, the, the township supervisor says that the number of rats uh, is, is increasing, that they can breed, 15, uh, can breed 1,500 rats every three weeks. So unless they're removing them at a rate of 100 per week, they're not making progress. What that story about rats, which is sort of a disgusting thing to think about, really illustrates is that you know, what starts off as something well-intentioned and something that has you know, great, great, great ideology behind it and idealism behind it can actually turn into a terrible thing and a debilitating thing and a destructive thing and it's something that takes over your life and you can't control it anymore. There's this old Puritan by the name of Thomas Brooks who has this statement about sin. He says, Satan paints sin with virtue's colors. And that's the camouflage by which the idol makes its way into our hearts. So what are the human beings to do in light of what's being written in Judges? Well, one of the things that Judges trains our eyes to do is to look always for the rescuer that God provides, that God sends. With Othniel, you have the victorious warrior. He is the one who takes on the enemies of God and defeats them. With Ehud, you have the left-handed man. It is the rescuer that no one expects. 
with Deborah, you have not just this warrior, but you have a wise ruler who knows how to put together the structures of life. With Gideon, you have the, 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 the rescuer and, and the judge from obscurity. He comes from where you don't expect the rescuer to come. With Jephthah, you have the outcast. He is one that is moving from derision to ruling. He is, he is the rescuer who becomes the ruler. And with Samson, lastly, the, one, uh, the last one we're going to look at through our study, you have the one who comes through a miraculous birth. So this brings us to the birth of Samson that, um, that Edward read for us tonight out of Judges 13. Samson, in Judges 13, is chosen before he is conceived. Samson is chosen before he is conceived. Samson is part of a long line of special births in the Bible. It begins with Isaac, the promised son to Abraham and Sarah, who is born to Sarah at a time when she is barren and unable to have children. Next comes Samuel, who will anoint the first two kings of Israel to be born. And he is born to Hannah, who was barren and unable to have children. Then after the time of, of Samson and before the time of Christ, you have John the Baptist, who is born to Elizabeth, who is a godly woman, a righteous woman, but who is barren. And he is going to be the herald of the Messiah. And what all of these have in common is that they remove the disgrace of barrenness from these women. Who, who were, that when women were, were, were bearing lots of children, these children would, would help support the family. They would be soldiers to defend the nation and the nation state. These, these women who were able to have lots and lots and lots of children were seen to be the heroes of Israel. And so when these barren women were able to give birth to a son, this son was taking away the disgrace of their mothers. And what they all illustrate is that God is working out His plans and His will in, in the world. That, that God does not allow something like barrenness and, and lifelessness to stop Him bringing life to where life is needed. Which brings us to the special birth of Samson. He is... His father is a fellow by the name of Manoah. He is a Danite. He's from this obscure village by the name of Zorah. His wife is not merely childless. It's not, the Bible doesn't really say that well, she just doesn't have any children. The, the text emphasizes that she is unable to give birth. And this angel appears to her and says to her one day, You are barren and childless. But you are going to become pregnant and give birth to a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink and that you do not eat anything unclean. You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite dedicated to God from the womb. He will take the lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. You find a description, a fuller description of what it means to be a Nazarite and what the Nazarite vow is all about. It's found in Numbers chapter 6, and basically the entire chapter. And the purpose of this vow was focused dedication to God. When, when you read the description out of Numbers chapter 6 of, of what this vow, this Nazarite vow was all about, what you see described is it's like athletic training. It's like somebody who has, has, has physically entered into a, a, a regimen of training. It looks like a call to holy living. And what the Nazarite vow was all about was it, it was about exerting your life in the direction of God. It was, uh, at many times it was temporary. Uh, for Samson, it's going to be all of his life. But the Nazarite vow was about exerting your life towards God. 
And the point here that the angel is making to his mother is that Samson is being put under God's rule before he is even born. Look at verse 5 again. He is to be dedicated to God from the womb. Which brings us to the final point, and that is Samson is born as promised. Samson's mother goes to her husband, tells him everything that has happened, and Manoah prays this prayer. He says in verse 8, Pardon your servant, Lord. I beg you to let the man of God that you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. Now, Manoah assumes, because he prays this prayer the way that he does, he assumes that this boy is going to be born. And the text says that God hears Manoah and the angel appears to his wife again while she's out in the field and Manoah is not with her. But she runs to tell Manoah that the man is back. And Manoah goes up to this angel, this, this man of God, and asks him point blank, what is to be the rule that governs this boy's life? And the angel says, here's the thing you need to know. Everything that I told you about the Nazarite vow that his mother is going to take on for him which places him under the rule of God before he is even born, before he is even conceived. That's what she needs to do. So Manoah asks him to stay for dinner, but the angel says, I'm not going to eat anything that you prepare, but if you prepare something like a goat, you can offer it up to the Lord. Offer it to the Lord instead. And they do this, and the, the, the flames of the offering begin to ascend into to heaven, and the angel ascends into the flames and rises to heaven never to be seen again. And that's when they realize that it's not just a man of God, but it is the angel of the Lord. And Manoah and his wife, they fall on the ground face first. And Manoah says, I think we're going to die because we have seen the angel of the Lord. And his wife, who seems to have a pretty good head on her shoulders, says, I don't think we're going to die because he accepted the offering. And number two, why would he go all to the trouble of telling us we're going to have a child and my barrenness and all of these things with the Nazarite vow if he intended to kill us in the first place? So they get up and, and Samson is born just as the angel of the Lord says. Samson's birth points us forward, like all of the judges, in helping us to recognize the Messiah. And Samson's birth points us forward a thousand years into the future, into the most special of all births. Where the birth of these others that I mentioned removed the disgrace of barrenness. This one, the birth of Jesus, brought disgrace. It is Jesus, born of a virgin, who is born in scandal and in suspicion. It is Jesus who is born away from his town in the city of David, in, 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 a, in a manger, in a stable. And where all of these other births, or excuse me, all of these other judges, as they were called to rescue God's people, were given honor. And they, and they were given a sense of prestige in order to fulfill what it is that God had called them to do, to deliver the people of God from the hands of the Philistines and the Melechites and whoever else that might be oppressing them and, and enslaving them. Jesus, on the other hand, had to lose all of his honor to complete his. And again, it's, 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 it's one of those ways that God reminds us just how important redemption is to him. You, you know, we were talking about all of these superheroes. 
superhero villains, I guess is what we should call them. You know, they're bad guys and they have uh, mild intent in their heart. And they see, they understand that human beings are fallen, that human beings are infected with some kind of a virus that creates evil and corruption and devastation and destruction in the world. For them, what they see is the answer to all of that is to destroy them all. Wipe the face of the earth clean, start all over again, and, 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 and allow whatever happens to happen. But the League of Shadows and whoever else is around with the counterbalance to all of the evil in the world will always rise again because human beings are fallen. Now, the funny thing is, is that God shows that He is all-powerful, does He not? I mean, the book of Genesis begins telling us that He created the heavens and the earth and He created all that is in it. And, and not only the stars and the moon and the sun and, 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 and the birds and the animals and separating water and sky and all of these kinds of things, but He created human beings and breathed into them, giving them life and making them living creatures. And there comes a point in the story of Genesis very early on where, as you know, uh, because of distrust of God and not being obedient to God's Word. Sin enters into the world and all humanity becomes infected by it. By the time you get to the first couple of chapters, you're not even to the story of Abraham. You have evil so corrupting as an influence and a force and a power in the world that God is grieved in His heart that He made man. And he sees Noah and he sees Noah's family. He says, I'll start all over with them. And in His great power, the power that was able to create all that existed and all that we know, that same power came to bear on creation and, and, and destroyed it. And he started all over with Noah. But the problem was the destruction of human beings did not destroy the evil. And so God has manifested the power and the ability to do what all the superhero villains want to do and think they're called to do. But what God shows Himself as having the power and the right to do that kind of destruction chooses not to do it. God does not choose eradication. What God chooses is redemption. One of the lessons of, of Judges is that God will continually send the rescuer and, and will redeem His people from their oppression and their enslavement. He will bring them unto Himself. And in His patience, He is raising these, these human rescuers to point us to the ultimate rescuer. That the ultimate rescuer is the ultimate warrior. He will go to battle with evil and He will be victorious over death and sin. He lived His life without a single blemish. He became that acceptable sacrifice of God to defeat evil and death and everything else that has corrupted us. He is, he is the wise ruler who in peace establishes the structures for which we live our lives. Not just transformed by which we live our lives. He is the one that, that is not expected because He does not come as a politician or, or a general or a rich man or a philosopher. He comes as the son of a carpenter with the words of God that He teaches the people. He, he's, he's, he comes from the most obscure place, Nazareth. Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And like Samson, He is the one that comes to us through this miraculous birth. And He's the one. He's the one that all of these judges pointed to. 
that all the kings pointed to, that all the prophets pointed to. Wherever we read Scripture, we see pointers and hints that there is one that is coming. Isaiah would talk about it. Ezekiel would talk about this, this one to come, this day that would come, this day in which God's Spirit would be poured out on all of humanity because of what the Messiah would accomplish. What this teaches us about God's love is that we don't have words really to describe it. We can describe it with words like infinite. We can describe it with words like patience, long-suffering, everlasting kindness. We, We can describe it in all of these different ways, but it's so deep and so profound as we read Scripture and see how God works in His human project that the best word is His love is infinite. Infinite. Like Psalm 136. We give thanks to the God of gods, to the Lord of lords. His love, what? Endures forever. And that's what Samson's going to point us to. He's going to point us as the one, this miraculous birth, who is ultimately strong because God has made him strong. He's going to point us to Jesus, born of, of a virgin, town of Bethlehem. God had appointed that right time. was going to be raised and lived a perfect life without blemish, without a single sin, cast on His name and cast on His record. And in love, and in love, sacrifices Himself so that we might get His righteousness and we might get the honor that He gave up in order to save us. Jeff will lead us in a song right now. And you know, as we think about our salvation, one of the things that has to, to strike us from time to time is that the reason that you and I are here tonight is because throughout all of eternity to the present day, God has been working out His salvation. He's been working His will. Even though the power of sin and the power of corruption and fallenness has tried to detour it and destroy it and has tried to wipe out and eradicate humanity, God's power overcomes. And God's power not just overcomes our sin, but He begins to transform us into the people that we were always meant to be so that we can participate in God's human project with Him in bringing that hope and bringing that love, that, that redemption, that reconciliation, that clean conscience, that forgiveness, all of that, that, that confidence, that significance, that, that direction in life, bring that to other people. And if somehow you've been maybe struggling a little bit with that, these shepherds are down here to talk with you and to pray with you. Or if you've never given your life to the One who ultimately will save you and redeem you and reconcile you to God. These shepherds would love to talk to you about how that could happen tonight. Let's all stand together and let's praise God with all of our hearts.